Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Christine McIntyre, registered number 17479, was a trailblazer in Victoria Police. She was one of the first female detectives in the Breakers Squad and the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, or BCI. Chris was also the first female to run her own police station and the first woman to be elected the director of the Police Association Credit Union. Chris also ran her own private investigation company. She's had some incredible experiences in the job, including wrestling a crook who attacked her partner. Hi, Chris, and welcome to The Crime Couch. Hi, Rochelle. Really glad to be here. Lovely to be sitting with you on The Crime Couch, Chris. Let's go back to your early days. You joined the job in 1972. Why did you become a policewoman? Why didn't you become a teacher or a nurse? I think in 1972, my father was a policeman and my grandfather, paternal grandfather, was a policeman. So I think it sort of ran in the blood. I think we bled blue, not red. And I can remember at 16 walking up to Russell Street to find out how old you had to be to join the job. So that's how long back. It was a passion of mine. That's what I, just what I wanted to do. Chris, what did the job hold for a young woman in those days? I think for me, I joined the job because I wanted to be a detective. I didn't think about the fact that we actually got equal pay. We actually had a good superannuation scheme, unlike my girlfriends that were in other jobs. And just the excitement of um, being a copper, I think, that's what I was looking forward to and um, following the tradition of the family. Obviously, the family, that had a very strong influence on you. Absolutely. And um, my paternal grandfather and father graduated from the depot at St Kilda Road and so did I. I was lucky enough to be able to accomplish that. That's a a lovely um, sort of uh, legacy, isn't it? It is, yeah, for sure. Um, Dad was really proud. So tell me, in those days, it's very different from today. How were police women treated in those days? And what sexism, if any, did you encounter? I think um, in those days you went straight to Russell Street Police Women's Division and ironically Grace Brebner was the inspector in charge and uh, you had to parade in front of her to make sure that your uniform was, you were correctly attired, your skirt wasn't too short and you weren't wearing any makeup. I was a bit of a, a rebel I think back in those days. I wanted to go out and catch crooks and lock people up and uh, volunteer for jobs for shoplifters and that sort of thing, which didn't go down too well within the division. I think I broke the mould back in those days. And, yeah, that's it, really. It's really interesting. So you said you were always destined to become a detective. What attracted you about that? In in 72, I think there was uh, about six female detectives and they used to come downstairs to the basement where the police women's division was 
and uh, check on our cards. We had cards on all the different females, etc. And I don't know, I just admired them. And um, one lady in particular was in the drug squad and I just aspired to be like her. Uh, Bernice Masterson, who eventually became, I think, an assistant commissioner, was a detective at the time. So they were people that I looked up to and I wanted to be one of them. You were also one of the very first females to join that very blokey squad, the Breakers Squad. How did that happen? I um, Actually, I was seconded from the Russell Street Women Police into a, a squad called the Support Group, and that was devised by Mick Miller at the time and ran by Chippy Norton, and these names will, I suppose, dredge up memories for people listening to the podcast. Graham Greenway, Max Reed were people in charge and they were mentors to me, taught me a lot. I had a couple of years there, so I had a a lot of arrests under my belt and it was from there I applied to become a detective. I was successful, went to Russell Street CI in the bull ring, as they call it, and there was a vacancy up at the breaking squad. I wasn't selected because of any attributes I had. I was selected because I was the only one that applied. And the reason being, you had an overtime allowance and if you were in any of the squads, that allowance was used up within a couple of months because of the hours that you worked. So I was successful because I was the only one and went up to the fifth floor, as they called it, with the breaking squad on one side of the corridor, the armed robbery on the other side and the consorting squad around the corner. So I walked in there and I wasn't greeted with open arms. Uh, The first job I was given was to wash the coffee cups. And that was okay. I thought, I'll play their game. I'll tread water for a little while until they find out what I'm made of. They all had a sergeant and a crew. So nobody wanted me on their crew because nobody knew who I was. Nobody knew what I was made of. Nobody knew that I could interview crooks, catch crooks and give evidence just as good as they could. Anyway, Liz Strickland, a sergeant, said, I'll take her. I'll have her on my crew. And this all happened in front of me. And I'm like, hello, guys, I'm here. (laughs) I can hear what you're saying. Uh, I went on to Liz's crew and I was actually at the breakers for just over four years. And uh, in the end, everybody wanted me to work with them. So I had to prove that I had what it took, I think. What an extraordinary story. Was there any special initiation as a female, particularly because I'd imagine they've not had one in the squad before? As you said, they're even speaking about you in the third person and you're actually there. I think as a female, you felt or I felt that I needed to catch more crooks, I needed to interview more crooks, I needed to give the best evidence that I could. Those sorts of things, I think you put pressure on yourself more than what they're putting pressure on you. And then I ended up in a crew with a sergeant called Rex Hornbuckle, who was an amazing guy, who was an amazing mentor to me that taught me a lot and taught me about humanity and how to treat criminals and also how to cultivate informants because a good detective has a lot of informants and um, they make you look good because they give you information. So I learnt that from Rex. And you 
You're absolutely spot on. That was my next question, which is that you worked with some of the most legendary detectives like Rex Hornbuckle and Bernie Rankin. Was it important as a young detective, female or not, just to have a mentor in that squad? Absolutely. And I think you pick your mark. You pick who you want to to mentor you. And Rex was um, an older guy. And in fact, when the two of us would go out and meet informants, it was as though he was a businessman and I was his secretary. That's what it looked like, which was good for our undercover if we were going to meet crooks in a cafe or somewhere like that. We didn't actually look like coppers. We didn't, you know, have that profile. Yeah, so uh, I worked with Rex probably for the last couple of years in the breaking squad. What an experience, Chris. The breakers initially hunted down safe breakers, professional burglars and receivers of stolen goods. What did you learn from working in that specific squad about investigating those crimes? I think back in those days, you when, when, when you called a crook and you prepared the brief of evidence, um, you every every case was a trial. So what you learned was um, to, to give good evidence, to learn your evidence, not to be afraid to be cross-examined. And I think that's what is missing today. Um, you know, we didn't have the DNA or those sorts of aids back in the day. It was just hard slog. And I have to say that, um, you know, the hours you worked, it would be nothing to work two days straight. And it probably split up a lot of marriages, I would say, back in the day, because uh, you'd work a couple of days straight and then you'd do the debrief at the police association at the club over a couple of beers instead of going home. Uh, And that's just what you did. It's interesting because, as you said, in those days, it really was good old-fashioned hard-slogging detective work where you used your shoe leather and, you, as you said, you just kept going on the brief, didn't you, and building the brief until you could prove those crimes were committed. Yeah, that's right. And that held me in good stead over the years, uh, particularly when I became a sergeant and I had to mentor young people, uh, go through their briefs of evidence and teach them how to put a good brief together and you know, win a court because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Chris, how tough were the crooks in those days? Have you got any memories or any specific individuals that stood out and still stand out in your mind? They were all tough, um, but back in those days, if you caught a crook fair and square, they wouldn't put a knife to your throat or um, uh, shoot you down dead, Uh, you know, you you caught them fair and square and most of the time they confessed. So there's a difference, I think. Any in particular that sort of stood out? I think uh, there was one time when there was a a lot of burglaries, daylight burglaries over in the Piersdale area. The crooks were breaking into sheds and stealing outboard motors and all sorts of things. So through Rex and I found out who the crooks were. We put the observation squad on them. And in those days, you'd follow the observation squad just in case the crooks caught them red hot doing a burg. And this is exactly what happened. I was with a a sergeant, Alan Dale, and I were following the observation squad. And they gave us an address at Piersdale, which was semi-rural farm. And we didn't know the crooks were there. And we walked down, drove the car, police car down, um, parked, got out, 
went into the shed and they were there and the shed was like Aladdin's cave. It was just absolutely chock-a-bop full of stolen gear. So we separated the two. I had the young one, Alan had the older bloke and then I hear Alan call out, he's got my gun, he's got my gun. So I did what any female would do with my young bloke. I kneed him straight in the balls and he went down like a bag of sack anyway. I went out and it was a quite a serious situation. Alan was fighting the crook for the gun. I jumped on the crook's back and tried to put him in a sleeper hold and he yelled out, get her off or I'll shoot you. And Alan said he's got his finger on the trigger, get off. So got off and we were held up by this bloke and his partner and bearing in mind the surveillance unit were in the area, so Alan and I put our arms up really high, hoping that they would see that something was going on. And in my head, I was thinking, we're the good guys. The good guys always win, but this is not the scenario that's happening. So anyway, he marched us into the shed and got the young bloke to tie us up, uh, lay us down, and we were facing one another. And I recall looking at Alan thinking... I think it's lights out. You know, we really thought that this bloke was going to shoot us because he had um, Alan's revolver. So anyway, he tied us up and they took the rotor button out of the police car and took off. And uh, we escaped. And I'll never forget Alan getting on the radio and saying to D24, we've just been held up. And D24 saying something like, what, what, what are you late for something? You're late going somewhere and Alan said no we've just been held up and then of course all hell broke loose and uh, it was a situation where the next day it was headlines in the Herald Sun you know female and male held up but looking back on it now it was was sort of embarrassing for me because I felt and I guess you put pressure on yourself you felt as a female I should have done more why why couldn't I have knocked the bloke out or whatever you know you really do beat yourself up but you did leap on his back I did I did leap on his back and I I learned how to put him in a sleeper hold to put him down but uh he'd already you know had his finger on the gun and it was a split second decision what do you do or is he actually going to shoot my partner and I think he would have because he was desperate and uh, he was um actually two weeks later because they were on the run and they did things like uh, dress up as women and try and escape and uh, you know we we were after them for a couple of weeks and um, unfortunately he got shot dead by one of the blokes in the breaking squad. Well that does happen. That does happen yeah yeah. And the interesting thing is is as you said you put pressure on yourself despite the fact that you leapt on the crook's back. Mm. Did that have any you know, I mean, being tied up and being placed on the ground and in fear of your life, mm. did that have any traumatic impact on you? I, well, that night um, we went back to the police, uh, went back to the breaking squad office and um, I was supposed to put a statement together as to what happened and the only thing I could type was my name because I couldn't really function I didn't know that I probably had a bit of PTSD then uh, because you just pulled your socks up and got on with it. So I made an excuse to the senior sergeant and said, I'm a bit tired, I need to go home and have a rest and I'll be back first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. So, And that's exactly what happened. And I couldn't for the life of me work out why I couldn't 
put words on paper at that time, but obviously I was traumatised but didn't realise it. But I was back on the job the following morning, six o'clock. And you probably didn't sleep much that night. No, you you relive it in your mind, what you could have done better and why it happened the way it happened. But you know what's interesting is that you chose also to get emotional outside the job and not in front of your crew members. Absolutely. You would never show any emotion in front of your crew members. Um, And, of course, there weren't the aides now, like back in the day. You you didn't, you know. No counsellors. No counsellors or anything like that. The counselling you got was at the police club and you debriefed at the police club. Which generally meant several frothies. Many frothies. (laughs) What an extraordinary story. After four years in the Breakers, Chris, you then moved to the Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, or BCI. Why did you do that? It was a newly formed squad and I wanted to be part of that. And it was actually Rex and I went up to the BCI and because we cultivated so many informants, we're in a position to collect intelligence. So that was, and and to do something different again, I think. Did you miss the rough and tumble of the breakers? No, I was probably ready to move on after four and a half years in the breaking squad. And uh, the BCI was run by um, an iconic guy called um, Fred Sylvester. Uh, and, of course, his son is Sly of the Underworld. Um, and Nicknamed Fred the Cat. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and great mates with Mick Miller. Yeah, so I worked with some incredible guys in the BCI as well. How important, like at the BCI, one of your roles, I'd imagine, would have been data gathering. How much is that important in crime investigation? Really important to gather information on crooks and file it away because you never know when uh, you're going to need it. We're also uh, involved in um, listening devices. Um, uh, I did a bit of undercover work for the BCI. I befriended a very well-known criminal, his wife, to get inside the premises to gather information. She didn't know I was a police officer, obviously, And we eventually put a listening device in the place. And it's a bit of a funny story. We had the surveillance unit out the front making sure that nobody was going to walk down the front path. And there was myself and the techs in there um, putting the listening device in. And then on the radio, we get a call to say that somebody was coming to the front door. So I literally jumped in the broom closet and somebody else went into a wardrobe while... The person came in, this is a true story, came into the house, potted around for a little bit and then left. And then we were in there and then we came out. I blame the surveillance unit. They didn't give us enough time to get out. But we made a little bit of a mess, so I used the vacuum cleaner to back it up (laughs) and then left. Yeah. What a story. And, And was that successful at the end of the day? It was very successful at the end of the day, yeah. Oh, we caught a crook, yeah. Well done, despite being in the broom uh, closet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Chris, nowadays we'll speak about your, you know, the second part of your career in our second interview. But I just was curious to know: Do you miss now being a detective? No, I don't. No, I. Um, you have to draw a line in the sand. And when I got promoted to a sergeant, went back to uniform. I didn't go back to the CI. 
I was enjoying my time in uniform. So it was a easy transition. It was. It was an easy transition for me. Um, I had a lot of time in the soccer unit and also as station commander at Diamond Creek. So it was satisfying, really satisfying. Do you think it's important for police members to get those very crucial skills as an investigator, which you can only really get as a detective? Do you think that's important? I think it's really important, um, particularly, as I've mentioned, to have mentors, to learn from people. Um, it sets you up for the rest of your career. And I'd say to the young people um, when I was a sergeant, don't stay in the same spot too long. Does it matter if you go to public relations? Does it matter if you go to industrial relations? Does it matter if you go to uniform or soccer? Get as much um, um, experience as you can um, over a wide range and so that when you are promoted, you can always go back to that area. And I suppose you can specialise after you've got a taste for a whole lot of general sort of duties. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, if you're on the van, for an example, and there's members out there that are on the divisional van for years, but, yeah, it can be very, but you're really doing the same job every day, aren't you? You know, you're doing traffic, you're doing domestics, you're doing assaults, um, you're repeating it, yeah. and uh, you can run yourself into the ground. Have a break, do something else, and then come back to it. I think... Also, from doing a lot of interviews on the crime couch, the people that have really contributed an enormous amount too have often even left the job and then come back. And I think that's another area where you can bring those skill sets that you get from doing other roles and bring that back into VicPol. Is that something you thought you might have considered? Absolutely. Um, actually, I've got a brother-in-law still in the job and he left um, went into private enterprise and then came back in the job and I think he was better for it. We'll continue talking about your career in part two, Chris, and thanks very much for sitting with me on the Crime Couch. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch.